so let's get into our study tonight, Proverbs 14. Uh, we had covered uh, all the way through verse 10. I'm going to pick it up with verse 11. I'm just going to read verse 11 and 12 to start with, and then uh, we'll work our way through, uh, hopefully all the way through verse 25, but we'll see where we get to. Uh, starting with verse 11, your Bible's open, Proverbs 14. The house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the up- upright will flourish. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful to be here tonight. We're thankful for this building, for the air conditioning. Thank you for the freedom to meet. Uh, We pray that you'd bless this time in your word. You would speak uh, to each and every one of us, including me speaking, Lord, that your spirit would speak to all of us. Lord, remove the distractions or anything that would impede us growing in your grace. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would just uh, fulfill your will for tonight, that you draw us nearer to you, and we put into practice the things that you would have us to learn and understand and apply in our lives. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm not going to do any review. I'm just going to jump right in uh, to verse 11. As uh, you know, Proverbs, we've covered so many different uh, truths and different uh, principles, and they really... Some are repetitive, some are just kind of new along the way, and so we're just going to jump right into where we're at in verse 11 and 12. Uh, I want you to start and notice, uh, first off, the contrast here, uh, the house of the wicked versus the tent of the upright. And notice this contrast here, those that are in rejection and rebellion towards God, they are attempting, and you'll see this, uh, you know, in society at large, not just here, but around the world, uh, people are attempting to set up a permanent home in this world. And they might not think that way, but uh, trying to set up a permanent home, while those of us who have submitted to God, we rather consciously come to realize by the Holy Spirit and by reading the Word that we're only setting up a tent. In the famous book, Pilgrim's Frog, we know we're sojourning through. We know we're just passing through. We know that the body that we have is a temporary dwelling. We know that our time on earth is very temporary. Moses, as you might recall, he had a tent. Pharaoh had a palace. How did that work out? Moses appears with Jesus later in the New Testament, on the Mount of Transfiguration. There he is with Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Pharaoh's nowhere to be found. Although, as Psalm 136 records, it actually uses these specific words about Pharaoh. It says that he was overthrown. Exactly what we see here in verses, uh, verse 11. The house of the wicked will be overthrown. Empires are uprooted that seem invincible. If you study history, if you enjoy history, if you like to study the past, you will see that every empire, no matter how great it was, no matter what heights it achieved, eventually it crumbled. They seem invincible. People that seen the picture of health can suddenly succumb to disease. You know, one of the ones that, in my lifetime that, that I think of like that, remember Patrick Swayze? I, I, you know, I, I grew up in the movie movies in the 80s and everything, and you know, uh, but to see what cancer can do to a body. And, and we, we, don't, um, we don't look at that and say uh, anything but how sad it is, but the reality is that you can be really healthy, you can really, really fit, but we're temporary. The only um, 
permanent building supplies that we have to build with, so God does give us some building supplies, are the ones that we can store in heaven. Jesus said, lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. It's the only building supply. You can only send things ahead. You can't build a permanent structure here. Everyone knows that they will die someday, but so many live like they won't. Everyone knows this, but it's one thing to know it. It's another thing to live like you're going to eventually have to see God face to face. It's one thing to recognize that you're going to meet him. It's quite another to live like you're going to meet him. The knowledge that there is accountability, the knowledge that there is judgment, the knowledge that there's going to be a review of our lives, that's a sobering thing, isn't it? But that knowledge should bring us to the cross, shouldn't it? Get this big cross over here on the wall and just a reminder for us uh, that this is what Jesus has done. This is why he came, uh, to provide the cross. It's the cross where we find mercy. It's the cross where we find grace. It's the cross where we find forgiveness so that our lives are lived out in gratitude. We're not to be living for God only out of fear. Wouldn't you agree with that? We're not, we're not to be living for God out of just utter uh, trembling and, uh, and we're f- afraid to even look up and, and look to God, but out of thankfulness for the sacrifice of Jesus. That's why we're to be living. And we have the fear of the Lord, but it's, it's a reverence. The upright, they're not... It, it says here uh, in uh, verse 12... Our, our, Actually, verse 11 here, the tent of the upright will flourish. Now, I don't go around telling people, hey, I'm part of the upright. Do you? No, we, we consider our sinners saved by grace. So the, the upright are not pious and uptight. You know, that's not, uh, that's not the way that God would have us to walk. Uh, we are made right by the forgiveness that God has provided through Jesus and the free gift of salvation. We're made right. He makes us upright, but only that's just our standing with him. We still have flaws. We still have uh, issues that God is working out in the the work of sanctification in our life. And after and only after, only after we've surrendered to the Lord, can we actually flourish? It says here, uh, there seems a way, but the tent of the upright will flourish. And then it goes on to say, there is a way that seems right. Only after we have given our lives and surrendered, Lord, can we flourish in Him? Can we flourish spiritually? And this is as we abide in Christ, as we stay uh, near the Lord. There's this mirage of flourishing that results in uh, eventually being overthrown because there's people that, that you would say, if you look at them, they say, well, they, they look like they're doing really good. They look like they're doing a whole lot better than me, in fact. But it is a mirage, and uh, it's a difficult road to walk the road of faith your whole life, isn't it? If, you read the, if you've read the Scriptures, it wasn't easy for any of the saints that are before us. It's not going to be easy for us. Uh, but in the end, we will flourish. It's uh, not that we'll uh, become wealthy or have everything we want, but we'll flourish in the inner man, in our heart, spiritually speaking, in our minds. We'll flourish in the lives we've touched. Uh, you can take your kids to heaven, provided they also surrender, but uh, uh, you're not taking your possessions with you. So flourishing, we would much rather flourish spiritually because spiritually, and this is going to be a theme throughout our study tonight, spiritually is eternal. Eternal is far more than temporal. 
Now, verse 12 expands on the truth uh, that just like uh, a home isn't going to last forever, there's also a deception, an equal deception, that what sounds right, what sounds plausible, what sounds sensible, what even sounds open-minded must be right. Look what it says, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man. Seems right. It's italicized in probably a lot of your Bibles. Seems right, but its end is the way of death. See, anything that goes against Scripture, no matter how good it seems, no matter how popular it seems, no matter how uh, well it was written in Reader's Digest or how well it was written in Time Magazine or how well it was written in Women's Daily or Cosmo or any other publication or online, or people can write things that actually seem moral and noble and all these things. But if it goes against Scripture, it's like eating something that looks really delicious but actually has bacteria in it. Anyone ever gotten food poison? You were probably enjoying the meal earlier that night, right? <laughs> Me and my wife have gotten it twice. I hope I never get it again, but you, you just never know. Once was uh, at a restaurant in Charlotte. Another time we were out on the West Coast in Seattle. And neither time did we enjoy the experience at all. But the meal was great. Everything looked great. Everything looked amazing. It tasted great going down, but we were eating something that our body was going to reject. Now, thankfully, food poison, for the most part, doesn't kill you, but some bacterial infections can kill you. Some things you can eat somewhere in the world, you'll not wake up. That's not a good thing. We, we were down in, um, even last year, we were in Guatemala, and then uh, a few weeks ago, we were down in El Salvador. And we were warned that when we were in Guatemala, and for the Guatemala team, you'll get warned about this too, and we were warned in El Salvador that, you know, when you go out and you're, and you're, and you're ministering different places and, and the street carts and it smells so good, and the food looks so great. Don't give in. I had a lady, I mean, I made, she was such a sweetheart, and I was talking to her and, and just made a really good connection, and she offered me free food, and it looked really good, and I was hungry. And I didn't want to make her feel bad, so I had to, Lord, how do I handle this? And, but I couldn't say yes because I wanted to be able to be doing what I was doing the next day too. So... I graciously found, I don't remember what I said and how I found out uh, a way to kind of defer the situation, but um, don't be fooled by looks of things. Don't be fooled by how things sound. There's a way that seems right, but if it goes against the Scripture, it's not right. It doesn't matter what it says. It doesn't matter if everyone, if everyone in the block believes one thing, if it goes against the Word of God, stand with the Lord. Noah did that. He survived, didn't he? The rest of the world did not. The rest of the world would have said, Noah, you're a kook. You don't know what you're talking about. But he was the only one that knew what he was talking about because he was the only one that was actually believing what God said. And the same would be true in our time. Let's look at verse 13. Even in laughter, the heart may sorrow, and the end of mirth may be grief. This is an interesting verse and an insightful verse as well as it relates to emotions and the depth of our need at the spiritual level and at the soul level. And look at it again. Even in laughter, the heart may sorrow, and the end of mirth may be grief. Understand that laughter is a good thing. We all, we all like to laugh. We all need to laugh at times, specifically if you're laughing about things that are clean 
and are decent or just an observation of life. Sometimes you got to laugh at life because uh, you need to. We need laughter and we need lighthearted moments in life. Proverbs, 20, uh, Proverbs 17, 22 states that a merry heart does good like medicine. So sometimes laughter really is good for us. It's good for uh, the, the way that our body uh, responds to things. But laughter has its limits. You cannot laugh your way through life, or at least every moment of life. Would you agree with that? Laughter has its limits. Not everything is funny. Not everything is LOL or R-O-F-L or emoji or emoticon or whatever else. Uh, I mean, some people try and make everything LOL. After a while, I'm like, would you not do another LOL? Not everything is that funny. People try and make every, every situation hilarious. You watch sitcoms, laugh track plays the entire time. Just sometimes, just, just try concentrate on how often the laugh track is played. Everything, ha, ah, you know, they started this back in the 60s or 70s or something. And so, but you think about uh, the world we live in, too many comedians have died young making people laugh, haven't they? Suicide, sadness. I honestly get concerned, and I'm primarily speaking of adults because uh, kids and teens laugh way more than adults. But I get a little concerned when I meet adults who make every single thing funny or a joke. I mean, every, you, can't do, you, can't say, you can't have a single serious word with them. Not one, but it'll make everything a joke. I seriously, after a while, if I meet someone like this, after I've spent time after time, I start to weird. what's going on in their life? It's not everything. I, and I have a good sense of humor, and I hope you do too, but not every single thing. It's funny. Not everything's a joke. I'm also concerned with people who never laugh. That's another extreme, right? Never, ever laugh. I'm like, all right, there's something wrong here too. The one that's laughing all the time, the one that's never laughing. Laughter is helpful at certain times and even therapeutic in some measures, but it cannot penetrate our deepest needs for healing, for restoration, for hope, which we which we talked about. It means joyful expectation or for comfort or for encouragement. You could have laughed yesterday, but that's not enough to rebuild your life, is it? No. Ecclesiastes 7.3 says this. It says, sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. Whoa. How about that for a verse? I don't see anyone claiming this for their life verse, by the way. I've never heard anyone say Ecclesiastes 7.3 is my favorite verse, my life verse. I live by sorrow is better than laughter, by a sad countenance a heart is made better. I've yet to hear anyone say that's my life verse. Because Solomon, he wrote both passages. He wrote this verse here that we're looking at, and he wrote Ecclesiastes 7.3. He wrote both passages. He wasn't wishing this to be the case because nobody would choose sorrow over laughter. He found it is to be the case. In the course of his life, he found that sorrow did something of greater depth than laughter did. Not only in his own life, but as he observed the character of people, as he observed how God worked in people's lives. There comes a time when something funny or trivial can't help us, where we need Jesus, right? Something funny or trivial can't always do the trick. You've met people, and some of the strongest people you've met that have spiritual death is because they've been through something. 
They've sorrowed. They've, they've reached great depths. They've had Jonah moments, right, where you uh, find yourself in the belly of a fish, be it metaphoric, I'm speaking, like a problem that you just can't get out of. That's where strength will come from. Spiritually speaking, emotionally speaking, as pleasant as laughing is, sorrow and pain bring us much deeper into the presence of God. Would you agree with that? If you've been through things, that sorrow and pain bring you much deeper into the presence of God, into the resource of God, into dependence on God. And then... And only then can you experience the peace that surpasses understanding. Well, it's easier to have peace when you're laughing. But when you have peace in the midst of darkness, that surpasses understanding. That's what the verse means. We used to sing this song in the late 90s when I moved from Fort Lauderdale up to Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, Take me past the outer courts, into the whole, all the way past the crowds of people, past the priest, into the holy of holies. You only really desire to go into the holy holies when God is softening your heart. And when he softens your heart the most is when you really are in desperate need of him. But if everything's flying high and laughter and all kinds of good times, the outer court starts to fade, doesn't it? I mean, the inner court starts to fade. The holy holy starts to fade. Isaiah 53.3 said this about messianic prophecy related to Jesus. A man of sorrows acquainted with what? Grief. That's what it said about Jesus. That he would be acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows and difficulty and darkness. We get to know Jesus because he was a man of sorrows. Doesn't mean that your life will be nonstop sorrow, but there'll be times that it's dark. There'll be times when it's difficult and you'll actually grow far more inside, spiritually, more related to the nature of God in that time than you ever would when times were just laughs and giggles. You'll get to know Jesus and his grace and his love in a way that brings joy. Did you hear that? It actually brings joy. It says here, and laughter the heart may sorrow and the end of the mirth may be grief, but uh, remember what Solomon said in, in Ecclesiastes 7.3, but the heart is made better. Your heart will be made more like the Lord. You'll actually be able to have joy as Paul would experience in the difficult times. God can actually give us a countenance of joy even when we're in pain, even when things don't seem remotely right. This defies logic, doesn't it? That God could actually give us joy. We understand that we could have a joy when we just got a raise and I've uh, got a new car and uh, laughing through a funny movie, but you could have joy in a difficult time. That defies logic. Spurgeon said, It will greatly comfort you if you can see God's hand in both your losses and your crosses. It will greatly comfort you if you can see God's hand in both your losses and your crosses. When you start to see God's hand in those things, it starts to transform you inside out, and you actually can have joy to say, he's truly conforming me to the image of God. There's something God is doing to me that's going to benefit someone down the road, that's going to help me comfort someone that will really need it. I'll be able to speak to someone. You know, I've talked about this before in Proverbs. When you've really gone through things, you can minister to people. When you have, and you don't have a clue what they're going on. I don't know, what's that like? My life's perfect. 
But the more you've gone through things, it makes your heart more compassionate to people. You actually are more sensitive to what people are going through. You actually don't assume that every single person is ready to laugh for the next 10 straight hours with you. They might, but you don't make that assumption because you walk into a room and you say, what is the needs here? You start to look. Jesus always found, you're in a, you watch his ministry, he always found the person that was at the lowest point in the room. And he came to them again and again and again and again and again. And that's what God will do. He'll give us a more compassionate heart, eyes of compassion through what we go through. The unsaved world, they can't understand that you can actually have joy in the midst of trials. But when Jesus was asleep at the bottom of the boat, he was teaching all of us. He wanted us to get to that place. Let's look at the next verse, verse 14. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. The backslider in heart. Uh, It's been well well said that at the end of the day, uh, either we say to God, thy will be done, or he says to us, thy will be done. It's an issue of where our heart. Are we going to surrender? Are we going to resist? The prophets of the Old Testament, they use this term backsliding. How many of you grew up in the 80s when backsliding was used a lot? A lot of of messages on backsliding. And and it's been misused a lot. The term has really been misused a lot. Let me help uh, clarify what the term means scripturally. I don't know what your understanding of the term is, but... The prophets of the Old Testament, they used the term backsliding to contrast apostates, apostate unbelievers, with genuine saints and followers of God. Not people that, generally speaking, the term was not those that were serving and, and uh, serving the Lord, and all of a sudden, they just went off the rails. It was they had a form of godliness, as the New Testament talks about, but deny the power thereof. They really apostate through and through, the backslider in heart. What it means, in other words, say, well, but it, it, the term means to slide back. If that's what it means, well, it does, but in this sense, those that have known and heard the truth, they've seen it lived out, and they still choose the course of this world. Good example of this would be many of those, the children of Israel, that saw the life of Moses, saw the life of Joshua. They saw the goodness of God, and they still resisted. They were apostate the entire time. So they were in the pew, but arms folded, spiritually speaking, right? Not really with the Lord in heart, the backslider in heart. Paul said of Demas... He has forsaken me because he loves this present world. Demas uh, was never really in. Paul never, actually, all of his letters when he mentions Demas, he never calls him one of the brethren. Paul always had his, seems to always have his doubts about Demas. Like, not sure this guy really wants the Lord or not. Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 7, but the heavens and earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire. So to choose the world over Christ is to choose the same destination of the world. If the world's reserved for fire, and you say, I want the world, guess what you're choosing? Choosing the same fire and judgment that the world is going to experience. That's a really bad choice. 
But the, a good man will be satisfied from above. Same verse, second half of the verse. A wise person will be forever satisfied by God. And we can be content now. As Paul said, godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. As you grow spiritually, you can be more content that you don't need all the trinkets that Satan will wave in front of people, say, you need this to be happy, you need this to be happy, you need this to be happy. Say, no, no, I have Jesus. Let's look at the next few verses, verses 15 through 19. I'm going to read them as a group, and then we'll kind of look at them. Starting in verse 15, the simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. A wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is self-confident. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of wicked intentions is hated. The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. The evil will bow before the good and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. We can group these verses together. Uh, again, they contrast again. Uh, the wicked versus the righteous, uh, those that have surrendered to God, those that have not. We can uh, group these verses together, though, as a kind of Neapolitan scoop, if you will, of walking by the flesh flavors versus walking in wisdom, walking in the wisdom of God, which influences every area of our life. Because when we walk in the wisdom of God, we walk in the grace of God, it influences all of our decision-making, the way we act, the way we think. We'll look at this more Sunday in our Ephesians study. I'm really excited about our Ephesians study Sunday and the next two Sundays because we're continuing this uh, Marks of a Healthy Church as we go through chapter 4, and we'll see more of this, uh, this walk that we're looking at here. But um, verses 15 and 18, let's look at them together. Verses 15 and 18 uh, both speak to Starting verse, uh, the simple, it says in verse 15, the simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well as steps. Drop down to verse 18, the simple will inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. So both have this contrast, the simple verse, the prudence. We'll take them as a group, uh, these two verses. Um, simple can also mean naive. Naive is a, is a term that you can use here versus prudence. And then verse 16 and 17, it's the wise and reverent before God versus the careless, the arrogant, and the rash. Think knee-jerk reactions, verses 16 and 17. Careless, arrogant, rash, knee-jerk, if you will, versus wise and reverent. And then verse 19 points to the future, and we'll look at that in just a minute. But let's go back to verses 15 through 18. Um, the simple believe every word. The simple inherit folly. Many a naive person, from God's perspective, you and I aren't going around saying, you're naive, you're naive, you're naive, you're naive, you're naive. That's not our place. But many naive people from God's perspective don't think they're naive. Would you agree? From God's perspective, as he looks down upon man, and he can see every heart, a lot of people who are extremely naive don't think they're naive, but God says, no, you're very naive. You're very simple. You're very foolish. Going back to verse 12, many would even consider themselves the picture of forethought, the picture of intelligence. Oh, I'm very analytical. Might reach a person who says, I'm type A. I'm analytical. I'm driven. I'm smart. I'm intelligent. 
I'm seasoned, I'm experienced, I'm successful, all of these things. So naive would not be in their description of themselves, would it? From God's perspective, you're very simple and you're certainly naive if you've ignored his wisdom and his warnings. Let's see how clear this is when we consider Scripture. The word prudent, it means, and I looked at like six or seven different dictionary uh, meanings of it, and when you can kind of consolidate them, it means acting with or showing care or thought about the future. Hmm. So a prudent person is one that acts with forethought and thinks about the future. Well, this would be a lot of our successful people, right? They would say, that's me. That's why I'm Times Man of the Year, right? That's why I'm on the cover of Business Week. That's why I was elected this office or that, because I think about the future in ways other people don't. You know the Prudential Life Insurance, that big rock? It's called Prudential for a reason. The word prudent is found in the word. It comes, it's an old English word there, because people that are forward-thinking and, 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 and care about, make sure the family's taken care of, all that. they think about things like life insurance and annuities and got to have all this stuff, all our ducks in a row, right? The brightest minds in business have three-year plans, five-year plans, 10-year business plans. The brightest minds in business are looking, some companies are looking 20 years out right now. The big oil company stuff, they're already looking 20 years out for where they will be drilling and all those things. You ever heard the term R&D? Research and development. What is research and development all about? It's always about future, future growth, future investment. Top athletes are preparing and training for what? Long-term success down the road, that they would still be competitive at, a, at an older age. Musicians are working hard to be the future superstars, aren't they? People are saving to retire early and enjoy the golden years and get that golf score even lower, right? College students are studying, heading back to school soon to have highly successful and rewarding careers. They're thinking future. All these are future th thoughts, right? Future, future, future. People are making sacrifices now in hopes they'll have a better life later. But many, in fact, most of these people will give little or no thought to eternity. Amazing, huh? All the stuff we talked about was future. Five years out, 10 years out, 20 years out, 30 years out, 40 years out, but no thought of eternity or very little thought of eternity. And Jesus said, what will it profit a person if they gain the whole world and lose their soul? You see, eternity, think about this, brothers and sisters, eternity dwarfs the future of everyone in the world combined like the universe to dwarfs the little speck of what we call the sphere of planet Earth. Would you say that the universe dwarfs our planet? Eternity dwarfs all of our futures combined. There's no comparison, and yet there's often no care or no interest. No care, no interest. Satan has pulled the wool over millions and millions of eyes, hasn't he? And people are very naive. They think they have, I mean, you could have everything together and not, Jesus told a parable about this. The man that said, I'm going to tear down these barns and build bigger barns. He, God said, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. You were not the brilliant forward thinker that you thought you were. Because the most important thing 
is our soul and our spiritual condition. Amen? And sadly, many Christians now are not thinking eternally. Do you know when the church thinks eternally, you wouldn't be able to hold back the people even on a Wednesday night here or any other church because eternity will matter far more to them. It really will. Every time, do you know that every time revival has been poured out in America, that churches overflowed beyond capacity? Every single time there's been a great awakening, the churches were packed because people had a spiritual thirst they didn't have before. Because prior to that, and you can still be saved, but still all of a sudden eternity goes way down your priority list and temporal goes way high up on the list, right? That's why, you know, there'll be people dying and starving to death and Christians are still thinking about their third flat screen. Sorry, I had to say that. Verse 16 17. A wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is self-confident. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of wicked intentions is hated. This further emphasizes back to Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. You all know this verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you fear the Lord... And you have that belief in his holiness, and you have that belief in his righteousness. Uh, this actually helps remind us, even if you're saved and you have a loving relationship with Jesus, God will sometimes use a little bit of a stir. You, you, any of you had a dad that really loved you, that would give you the look? And all of a sudden, your priorities changed, right? If you had a dad that really loved you, you know he didn't hate you, but you weren't getting your act together, and all of a sudden, you got one look. And you knew the next moment was going to be a different story, right? That's what God, if God really loves you and you have a relationship, God can just kind of give you, spiritually speaking, that look to say, don't even think about it. Do not go back there ever again. Don't do that. That will be dangerous to you. And that's good because I need, I need not only the love of God, but I also need kind of some firm words from God sometimes. How about you? God's not just uh, the dad, oh, here's some candy and here's this and here's that. You know, he also gives firm guidance. We, um, we need that. If there's not a fear of the Lord, then we become like Samson and we walk straight into a scissor cutting sit down. Right? Right? Samson, strongest man in the world at that time. He lost the fear of the Lord, and he strolls into the barber shop, not realizing all his strength was going to be gone. And this, is, can, this can happen to believers, too, where they, they've lost the fear of the Lord, and they can walk straight into the enemy's den, and it's over. We're um, also, if you see here, it says that this... Uh, this this nature of a man, um, quick-tempered, self-confident, rages. We're to be, as believers, though, less and less self-confident the longer we are in the Lord. If you're growing in the Lord, you think less of yourself than you did 10 years ago, less of your abilities than you did 10 years ago. You become less and less self-confident and become more and more confident in the Holy Spirit, more and more confident in Jesus. By the way, and this is a fact. I thought about it this morning as I was kind of going through these, some of these things. I can't even tie my shoes but by the grace of God. 
I'm, not say, I'm, I'm saying that something the size, smaller than a grain of rice, could enter my mind or brain, an aneurysm or something else, and I could wake up not knowing how to tie my shoes if it weren't for the grace of God, and so could you. How many of you believe that something could go wrong in your body that could render you helpless in a New York second? It's but by the grace of God. Why in the world do we have any confidence in ourselves? I don't understand it. And God says from heaven, why do you have any confidence? Did you, any of you make your heart beat today? Did any of you uh, say cells reproduced somewhere deep inside of me? Any of you say all of these things have to keep going? We're only alive but by the grace of God. The firing mechanism in the brain. And sometimes my brain doesn't work right. And I wished it did. And it's a reminder, God says, you, you're, you're very, very, you're just uh, dust and ashes like Abraham prayed. That's what he said about himself. Lord, I'm just dust and ashes. We can't do anything apart from the Lord, and we start to understand that. Um, if you give a, verse 17, it says, a wicked man will be hated. If you give a quick-tempered man more and more power, huh, not a good thing. Uh, even though people might have admired his strong temper to begin with, eventually they'll end up hating him. You give a wicked man power, eventually he'll come back and crush the very people who gave him the power. The church and this world needs humble leaders. Amen? That's what the world needs. Verse 19 this is future. The evil will bow before the good and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. We see the future where one day the last will be first and the first will be last, as Jesus said. Many of the rich and the powerful and famous, the rulers of this age, will someday see the unimportant, the ignored, the non-influential sitting with Jesus in power. Brothers and sisters, you can be sitting right there with Jesus. Where are you investing? Don't be fooled. Invest in the kingdom of God. Let's look at verse 20 and 21. The poor man is hated even by his own neighbor, but the rich has many friends. He who despises his neighbor sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. I know we're covering these verse fed. I, I can't, this is how Solomon wrote, so we're just going right through the fire hose the way it comes out. But Jesus, now think about these verses again. The poor man is hated even by his own neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Boy, that's true, isn't it? But he who despises his neighbor sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. So what is this telling us? Well, Jesus went out of his way not only to speak to, not only to minister to, and show love to the poor and to the outcast and the diseased even. But that's where he spent the majority of his time. If you've studied the Gospels, you know Jesus spent far more of his time with the down and outs, poor, downtrodden, than any other group of people. Quite the opposite of the way most people want to live their life. Uh, Jesus didn't just talk about and patronize the poor, but he loved and invested in them. Wouldn't you agree? It wasn't just talk. He really invested in their lives. Plenty of people give lip service to the poor and the downtrodden, but do very little to actually help them and to bring the love of God to them. It's good for every now and then to reread Matthew chapter 25, the latter half of where Jesus talks about, I was hungry, I was naked, I was poor, I was in prison. Either did or didn't visit me, right? 
the rich, they have so much and get so much attention. The red carpet treatment, the white glove treatment, and yet it's never enough. It actually increases. The world pays more attention now than it even did 10 years ago. In 15, it's just more and more. It increases. Executive pay continues to climb, skyrocketing far more than uh, your average employee, things like that. The rich, they'll always have well-attended parties. They're not a bunch of no-shows at the rich parties, right? You get an invite, you're coming. The events, the speaking engagements, the poor, well, they're not gracing the cover of magazines, are they? They're not having millions of Twitter followers. They're not trending on social media. They're not getting invited to the civic and the business leaders' luncheons and dinners and fundraisers, which are supposedly about them. The world passes them by, but Jesus didn't, and we can't either. Amen? If you go to the youth correctional facility with our Bonaire team, if you go to Hilliard House, single moms that, you know, economically in desperate need that end up there, even single men now, if you give to India through like Lee and Zach or to Uganda with Bill James or you give to El Salvador or, or you give to Guatemala, you give to this ministry as we help a lot of these places. And uh, as you see needs in your own community and really not just see them, not pass by, but Jesus talked about that in mean, the Good Samaritan, a couple of people noticed the needs, but they didn't do anything. They just noticed it. But you do more than notice it. You actually act upon it and say, I'm going to be the hands and feet of Jesus. I'm going to put my time in, I'm going to put my talent in, I'm going to put my treasure in to actually meet a need. Well, that's the heart of God, isn't it? Because he's waiting to see, will his church pass them by or will they live like Jesus did? Will they go into prisons? Will they go into third world countries? Will they go into the communities here in this city? It's the heart of God. But notice what it says, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. Amazingly enough, when we take our eyes off ourselves, it actually is most rewarding for us. I, would, I really do feel sorry for people who live their whole lives for themselves. It's so miserable to constantly think, how can I make me, 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 me happy? Instead of saying, there's a whole world out there that you can go bless. When we get to the, Paul is going to address this, I mean, as square as I've seen in Scripture, when we get further in Ephesians chapter 4, you've got to see what Paul writes. If you want to read ahead, go ahead. See if you can figure out what I'm talking about, the puzzle pieces. Paul calls the church to things that go against the grain of the world. And we'll look at it. And, and living our lives to actually help other people is the gateway to them getting saved. It's not the only way people get saved. Much preach the gospel, but, but Jesus often would go and because he extended a hand to people who were leprous or were in adultery or were poor and downtrodden, they weren't used to anyone paying them attention. They'd stop and listen to the gospel, then they would get saved. And nothing will make us happier than seeing people come to know the Lord. By the way, I love the heart of our church. I know some of you, if you'd follow me on Facebook, I shared out a couple that's seated in here right now helping a, a family in desperate need. And those of you, when you see needs and you meet the needs, God is well pleased. It bodes well for what God will do for us and in us and through us. The more giving and more generous, more compassionate we become, God will blow the doors off of what we will see God do. That's a fact. 
Verse 22 through 25, we've got to wrap it up with these last few verses. Let's read verse 22 through 25, and we'll finish with these. Do they not go astray who devise evil? But mercy and truth belong to those who devise good. In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads to poverty. The crown of the wise is their riches, but the foolishness of fools is folly. A true witness delivers souls, but a deceitful witness speaks lies. I'm not really going to cover verse 23 and 25. We've covered those two verses or very similar verses a number of times in previous chapters, but I really want to focus in as we close on verse 22 and verse 25. Look at verse 22. Do they not go astray who devise evil? But mercy and truth belong to those who devise good. That God would actually make us not, there's inventors of evil, which Paul talks about in the book of Romans, and then there's those of us that God so changed us that we devise good. We come up with ways that, how can we reach more people? How can we bless this family? How can we get this person out of poverty? How can we help this single mom get a car? How can we do, we're coming up with ways to actually do things that God would say, yes, that's my heart. But verse 25, it says, a true witness delivers souls. But a deceitful witness speaks lies. So we actually see God cares most about not just a person's physical condition, but what? Their soul. It comes down to where their soul lives. doesn't matter if we do a bunch of benevolent, charitable work and people still go to hell. God wants to reach their soul. And there's ways that compassion and love will do that. But these two verses taken together, verse 22 and 25, can sum, be summed up like this. Real love is lived out in truth. It's lived out in truth. The truth that Jesus reflected in his life, but also the fact that um, truth isn't always, truth should always have compassion, but it's not always popular. Truth is not always popular. Because even if you meet a person's need, and, and, and I've, I've done that, I remember the uh, my wife and I, we were helping this couple that they were homeless. We lived in Charlotte, and we were helping them. And even though we helped them a lot, at the end of the day, they wouldn't give their hearts to the Lord. And there's only so much. You can only go so far after a while because the, if they're not going to give their hearts to the Lord, the drug addiction is not going to stop. The issues aren't Until you give your heart to Jesus, you can't have victory over certain sins, or over any sin for that matter. But, but if you have habitual addictions and things like that, you have to first surrender to Jesus. Then anything is possible. You can be no longer addicted to alcohol, drugs, sexual sins, all these things. Anything can be delivered, but you have to first repent. So you, you might have come in love, but you have to at some point say, well, this is what the Bible says. Well, I don't want that. I just want your help. Truth, love, they go hand in hand. An unknown author said, love always seeks to help, never to hurt. We tell the truth to people from this pulpit and in the children's classes and in discipleship, not because we're trying to say, hey, you're living your life wrong. No, because we know that Jesus wants to give you life and more abundantly. Plenty of people will talk about what love is, and they talk about hate is, haters are going to hate and all this kind of stuff and different politically correct messages and hashtags and all this stuff. But only God defines what love really is, amen? And because God loves souls. He's not trying to win political debates. He's already won every debate. He's not trying to win over followers. He's not trying to win over anything. He's already won everything. He defines truth. And the love of God is merciful. 
It says here, but mercy and truth belong to those who devise good. If you're one that does the goodness of God, you're going to do it with mercy and truth. You're going to be merciful to people. You're not going to say, I gave up on them. We don't give up on people. Even, by the way, even if we have to say, I cannot support you anymore, you can still be praying for that. You didn't give up on them. You just are still working on their behalf just in intercession in your prayer closet. So there's no one we should ever give up on. You can't, you can't, I'm not, I'm not going to fund your drug habit, but I'll still be praying for you. Make sense? We didn't give up because prayer is actually more powerful than the dollar that's in your pocket anyway. But God will use them in concert. But God is merciful. He wants us to be humble. He wants us to be truthful because truth actually sets souls free. And as the Lord has done a million and millions of times the last 2,000 years, when we present the truth in love, God will do something amazing with it. Amen? Let's close in prayer.